over 80 years after its initial publication. Ayn Rand's novel, Anthem, is taught in thousands of classrooms across the country every year. What do students stand to gain from reading it? And why do teachers find it so valuable to teach? Welcome to New Ideal Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm Aaron Smith, a fellow at ARI, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Sam Weaver, a junior fellow at ARI. Welcome, Sam. Thanks, Aaron. <laughs> it's nice to have you on the show, so, Sam. Yeah, it's good to be here. So I think we'd like to start by uh, giving a brief overview of the novel Anthem and some of the experiences we've had uh, learning about how this novel is used in, in classrooms around the country uh, so that to set the context for the rest of our discussion. So we're going to talk about this novel, but we want to uh, give an overview in a way that doesn't give away too much of the plot and give away spoilers for the ending in case you haven't read the novel yet and uh, we wanna motivate you to be interested in reading it if you haven't. Um, but just to give the, the outline of the story. Uh, so Anthem is uh, a novel that takes place in a primitive authoritarian future world, a kind of dystopian future where there's technological achievements are lost and and people's lives are controlled in totalitarian fashion. And the distinctive feature of this world that is noticeable right away to readers of the novel is that uh, singular pronouns, most notably the word I, is lost. And people refer to themselves as we, even when they're only talking about just themselves as one person. And the story of the novel is about uh, a young man and a young woman is mostly focuses on on the man, but they're there. Those are the two major characters uh, named. The young man is named Equality 72521. We'll just call him Equality. And the young woman is Liberty 53000. And we'll just call her Liberty. And these two characters, we see them struggling to live lives of of meaning and pursue their their values and their dreams in this very repressive world. And we see them try to understand how, why the world that they live in is, is the way that it is and not, not like this past that was so much different. Um, this is Ayn Rand's shortest novel by far. It's a little over a hundred pages and the story is pretty accessible to younger students. So these are factors that are probably why it's uh, her most widely read novel in, in middle and high schools. And uh, our experience in, in how this novel's taught in schools is that over the last year, uh, the two of us and some other people at ARI have been doing virtual events at middle and high schools uh, where teachers invite us to come and, and talk to the class. And we get to engage with the students and hear their questions and, and talk to them a little bit about, a little bit about the novel. Um, and we've, appeared in, in classrooms for ranging from seventh grade to 12th grade and, and gotten to hear what students are getting out of the novel. Um, so that has given us a little bit of perspective on how this novel is, uh, is approached by students and by teachers. Yeah, and I think both of us have had the experience that in doing these classroom events, um, they're both enjoyable, uh, they're fun to do. Um, this is a, an opportunity for us to talk to an age group. I think that's really important for um, ARI, the Ayn Institute to reach, 
it's very important to, I think, reach people at a time when, I mean, they're in their tweens and teenage years uh, where they're, <clears throat> they're basically at a point where they're becoming more independent. And they're trying to figure out who they want to be, what kind of person they want to be, um, what kind of life they're going to pursue. And it's often a kind of an incohate young persons striving and struggling with this. I mean, we all remember our teenage years, right? Um, and you're trying to form a self. And I think uh, reading Ayn Rand's novels helps them to think about more deeply about what does it really look like to form a self? What kind of self do I want to be? Do I want to be? And I think it's one of the reasons why we want to uh, get Ayn Rand's novels into the classroom and actually have the opportunity to enter the teachers. Um, is just for that reason, to try to assist them in a way, I think, in ways that we think are rational in um, thinking about their own lives. Uh, it's meaningful, like talking to the kids and teachers that we uh, that teach the novel often repeatedly just year after year. Um, they are very enthusiastic about the novels. Um, and we can talk about some of the reasons why I mean, one of the things, uh, when you look at why the story interests teen, teens, teenagers, and we can talk about some of the aspects that capture their uh, imagination, I think the first thing is just the storytelling itself. I mean, Ayn Rand is a, well, I'll throw in my value judgment, a great novelist, right? So she is, uh, she's a great storyteller. And the story of Anthem is, in a way, um, a strange one. And the world of Anthem is strange, right? So Sam was just talking about, it's a, it's a primitive future. It's set in uh, an indeterminate future. We're not exactly sure exactly when it's set. And I think it's not that important. Uh, just that there had been a world of, that was like our own today. It's a world of technological achievement, of high progress and so on. And you get the impression from the novel that that world has gone away. It's collapsed long ago, long, long ago. And they've reverted to a primitive state. I don't mean bearskins and clubs and stuff, but it's they're primitive in terms of their latest technological developments are things like the candle. Uh, and they live in very simple housing and why it, so there are all sorts of questions that this sparks. Why did they revert to this kind of primitive life? What was the story there? What's the causation? Um, th in the world of Anthem, the characters live highly regimented lives and they're taught to think that their own and not to think independently not to pursue their own thoughts their own goals their own values but to be subservient to the group and obey its demands and so on uh, they're taught to elevate the collective or the society above their own selves and and when you watch the progression of what that happens uh, in the story, and it's a strange, it's a strange world. And part of our job is to bridge the gap between a: how do you understand this kind of world? B: how did they get there? Like, um, and then what does this have to do with us today? Because that might be an interesting story. But are there elements of what we see in the story in our own society and in our own lives? And that that just generates a lot of questions related to the. Um, to how do you get there and why these ideas, at least the author thinks, lead to this as a, as a result. 
yeah, that question of how how did they get there is one that we get a lot uh, when we have teachers send in the questions that their students have or when we talk to students in classes uh, that it's very clear pretty early on in the novel that the it's not this is not some alternate reality that the past in the novel when they talk about what happened in decades centuries ago is our present and so there's a clear implication that rand is saying that our world could become like the world of this novel and i think that's startling for a lot of students and we get a lot of questions that come down to something like how could people let this happen how could people let the world go from the way it is today into this sort of primitive authoritarian nightmare scenario. Um, and it's, it, it's a difficult question and it's a question, but it's a question that's interesting to, to students, very interesting. And it helps them start thinking more deeply about uh, what shapes society and that there are different types of society that you're not just the world that as it is today is not the way things have to be. There are different ways that things could go. And uh, part of the, what's interesting in the story, part of the mystery in the story and part of, I think the intellectual value of the story is trying to figure out how, how could it happen? How could people take all the things that we have today and lose them or cast them aside? Um, and it's not, I think it's especially challenging because it's not like the story presents you with one villain who's like the culprit, the one who tore down the world. Instead, everybody seems to just be part of the way things are and and the transformation that occurred doesn't doesn't have one person who you can point your finger to and blame. Yeah, and I think that also points to the the way. I mean, Ayn Rand's a controversial thinker. She's an original thinker on philosophic issues, right? uh, and one of the things that she's original about is the way she thinks about good and evil, the way she thinks about morality. And the book has a unique approach to good and evil. Sam, you said um, there's no there's no like villain you can point to uh, in the story, and the villain, in effect, if you want to put it that way, is. Um, there, there are certain philosophic ideas about good and evil. Um, it's that, and you put this in, in philosophical terms, it would be, it's altruism and collectivism. In other words, uh, when it comes to altruism, it's the view that, uh, that the moral is to sacrifice for others. Uh, that you, <clears throat> the, uh, and, the, and when it comes to not to pursue your own goals, not to pursue your own values, not to achieve your own happiness, but it's to sacrifice for oneself for others, to place others above self. I mean, that is an idea that's widespread today, even if not fully and thoroughly and consistently practiced. And what Ayn Rand, one of the things that Ayn Rand wants to do in the novel and in her works generally, is to isolate and highlight what it looks like to actually take that approach to good, uh, to good and evil seriously. Um, and what she's trying to dramatize in the novel is, yeah, this is what it looks like when you take that approach seriously and consistently and you mean it, um, this is what it looks like. And, and the society you live in is not one you'd ever wanna be in. Um, you know, so her approach to good and evil is unique in the novel. Uh, the characters are taught that independent thought is evil. 
So what then is the connection between um, altruism and independent thought? And so again, it pushes you to think, well, what is, what is independent thinking and independent valuing? Uh, like to form your own values, but like everybody tells me I'm supposed to think this is good and this is bad. And my view is, no, I don't agree with that. Like, well, what's wrong with that in the story? Um, and I think it points to one of the one of the themes in the novel is that the role of an individual's independent thinking mind in forming one's values, reaching the truth, uh, and just how important that is, and that what it means to sacrifice, uh, not to sacrifice one's values, is to sacrifice one's independent judgment, and and sacrifice one's means of identifying what's value, what's valuable, what's worth pursuing in life, what's worth going after. That is a comes from an individual's judgment about what's true. And what we see in the novel is that is precisely what's persecuted. The individual who approaches life like that. And the story tells of, uh, of two individuals um, uh, you know, that are nonetheless trying to push back against that. And then it raises questions is why is that kind of independent thinking so crucial? Like why does Ayn Rand, or does the author of the book, put it that way, think that these things are so important? So. I think one of the things that's difficult in life, I think for people in general, and not just because they're you know not philosophers or something, it's hard to challenge and think outside the box uh, when it comes to ethics. Um, there are all sorts of ways in which we we can be more independent, like we're choosing a car, which car to buy, or which college to go to, and you know we're, we're a little bit more independent-minded there. When it comes to the nature of good and evil, the nature of right and wrong, it's much more challenging to really deeply uh, question is any of this stuff right <laughs> what i'm being told uh and that's one of the things ayn rand does she, she's challenging at root something that we take often for granted um and that's hard to do and it's, this is a way in which this can be these issues can be surfaced at least uh for young people to start to start thinking about it um Yeah, uh, you mentioned uh, the the heroic characters who start to think for themselves and start to question the ideas that they're raised in. I think one one other thing that's interesting to students about the novel is that uh, the heroic characters, especially Equality, who's we see the novel from his perspective. He, it's his journal is the is the text of the novel, so it's first person from from Equality's perspective. And he's the protagonist of the story, and and he can be, you know, he's Ayn Rand is presenting him as the hero, but he's not like uh, the heroes that you typically read about and that students will often have read about. Uh, I mean, one thing that's striking about him is that he's heroic, but he's he's selfish. He is he is out to achieve his goals and achieve his own happiness, and he's he's not really his focus is not on sacrificing to others and, and serving the group, serving society. His focus is on what do I want? What will make my life wonderful? And that sometimes involves him trying to help others, but, but his orientation is towards his own self-interest and, and not towards, uh, towards making sacrifices for, for other people, which is not the type of hero that you often read about and so we often get questions from students like is this is this the hero is he 
he seems kind of selfish. And that's another thing that really sparks conversation about what does it mean to be a hero? What does it mean to be moral? And that all of these questions sort of bring forward the issue of, uh, of thinking for yourself, which Aaron, you mentioned it a couple of minutes ago. Um, this is really a central issue in the novel. I mean, it's something that is raised by just by the fact that there are all of these controversial ideas that are being putting, put forward and all of these mysteries, like how did the world get this way and, and what is motivating this character or that character. But it's also just something that's really important to the characters in the story, really important to how the story progresses. So we're focused on equality, who's a young man, he's like 21 when the novel begins, and he's raised in this society, brought up to believe all of these things. There's no such thing as, as an individual. You're only a part of the group, and your entire meaning of your life is to serve the group and to, and to make and to do things on behalf of the group, do, do what you're commanded to do and ordered to do. And uh, this is all that he's ever known. And he has to face a choice of, uh, as to whether to embrace this uh, or to fight against it or to question it. And that's really hard in a society like this and, and um, really important. So we see the other characters in the novel, almost nobody in his society, none of his peers, even consider questioning what they've been taught. They are, they're almost completely mentally passive. They're not trying to understand it. Is what I'm being told true? Is something else true? They're not even able to operate in that way. They're completely passive. They're, they're just unthinkingly going through their day, following the, their orders and following the, the commands that they've been given by the leaders of the society. Equality is one of the few people, and liberty is one of the others, who actually is motivated to think. And this is the thing that changes his life. He starts to look, look at the world and try to understand what's true, try to understand how things work. And he becomes really interested in science because he wants to understand you know, where does, what is lightning? Where does that come from? I, what are these animals? How, how did, how did these animals work? What makes them different? And, and, and all sorts of questions that just come to him from a, the world around him. And he starts thinking about it. And in the process of starting to think about the world and trying to understand these whys, he also starts thinking about the things that he's been taught because he starts to see that he's been told things that aren't true. For example, they tell him that all of the scientific discoveries have already been made. And then he recognized, well, here's something that I just figured out that hasn't been taught to me, that hasn't been figured out. So what I've been told doesn't seem to match up with what I've observed. And this is the key to, this is one of the keys to his process of starting to think for himself and starting to question the things he's been taught, which ultimately leads him to uh, be completely uh, against or, or completely to completely reject the teachings of, of his society. Um, and that makes a huge difference in 
in his life. He's able to start thinking about how can I pursue my happiness? How, what would be the best life for me? While everyone around him is just mindlessly accepting everything they've been given and living lives that the novel makes very clear are quite miserable. So equality in the story is, it illustrates how you think for yourself. How do you start to become an independent thinker? And this is a powerful example for students who are, you know, when we're talking about a lot of the students we're talking to are, you know, 13, 14, they're starting to think about how do I understand the society I live in? How do I understand my place in the world? I've been told a lot of things and now they're starting to reach a point where they can start to question, are the things I've been told really true? How do I know if they're really true? And if, by looking at the character of equality, you can see somebody who is pursuing the right method of trying to figure out what is true. And one thing that there's a lot that can be said about this, but one thing that's really notable about equality is that he's always focused on what he observes to be true, what he sees in reality. And he's, he moves away from an orientation towards what have people told me? What am I told to believe? What do other people believe? And this focus on reality instead of other people is in Ayn Rand's conception really a, a key element of becoming an independent thinker. And equality really models this approach, which is also the approach that the students will need to try to make sense of all of the controversial ideas and, and interesting ideas that are being put forward uh, elsewhere in the novel. Yeah, let me <clears throat> build on that a little bit um, and sort of bring in some of the questions that we ask students in class to get them thinking more about the kind of things Sam was talking about, about intellectual independence, about what it means to be selfish. Um, I often ask the students, is equality, is the character of equality selfish? And I just let them think about that. And some people will say, no, he's not selfish. Um, because what their view of selfish is, is somebody who doesn't care about other people, you know, just tramples over other people to get whatever he wants uh, and pursues all sorts of irrational ends um, and so on. And it's like, well, the character is clearly not like that. The character is not going around hurting anybody. He's pursuing his own, he's pursuing the truth. He's pursuing his own first-handed uh, uh, attempt to find what is true, what is good, what is valuable uh, in life. And it pushes you to think, so, if, but if you go back to the question, is he selfish? And they think, well, he's not trampling over other people. He clearly cares about some people in the society, not others, but some people that are his friends. Um, they wouldn't exactly classify him as selfish, but then if you say, well, is he the opposite of selfish? Is he selfless? They can't really put him in that category either because he's bucking the whole society to pursue his goals. He's not working to achieve some social end. He's trying to figure, he's trying to actually invent something. He's actually engaged in the novel. He invents something quite early. He rediscovers something, a, te a technology that was lost. Um, and he devotes himself uh, to study uh, along those lines. And so he's clearly pursuing his own ends. 
and they don't know how to exactly classify it. And that's one of the things I want them to get thinking about. And then we push on that because you, Sam was talking about intellectual independence uh, and the pursuit of happiness. Those are self-oriented, uh, selfish, selfish has baggage, right? The term, but they're very self-oriented. Um, finding friends that you love, reaching the truth, discovering something for yourself, um, conducting the life, a life in accordance with one's own judgment about what's true and good. Those are highly self-oriented and self-motivated actions. But so now you've got them thinking, well, I, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about when it comes to selfishness. Um, maybe, maybe she has something to say here about this. Um, because they off, the students will respond favorably to the character, to equality. Um, they'll think, yeah, he's this sort of good guy in the story. Um, but it's not because he's, you know, battling hordes of orcs or something. He's not an obvious hero <laughs> or, uh, you know, battling terrorists or something. He's not the obvious sort of physical hero. Um, what's heroic about him? And they don't know that this is heroic yet, um, or at least that, I mean, that Rand certainly projects it this way, but they don't know, they don't think of independent thought, the pursuit of truth, the pursuit of happiness as heroic. Um, the use of your own reasoning mind, standing by your own judgment. Um, they don't yet think, of, they might think of that as good in some sense, but maybe also problematic in other sense. Um, well, what if everybody disagrees with you? Then you're just sort of a problem uh, for other people. And so it's, they don't exactly know how to think about that. But what the novel projects in spades is just the valorization of an individual's pursuit of truth, the independence and courage that's required to do that, and the rewards of succeeding. Um, and what it really takes, and Sam, you mentioned something about um, the method by which he pursues his life. And the method by which he pursues his life is the same as, uh, in effect, Howard Rourke. Um, it's, it's, Ayn Rand would think of this as being first-handed. So one of the interesting things, it's a little tangent, but it's interesting, um, is that she was working on the Fountainhead uh, and struggling with issues with the plot and decided to take a short break from the, uh, from the Fountainhead, her work on the Fountainhead, and write Anthem. Uh, so she wrote this uh, in the span of three months. She basically took a summer off uh, and wrote this story. And she said it has the same theme uh, as the Fountainhead, which is also interesting to explore. And it relates to an in, uh, like independence, uh, predominantly independence, but independence and integrity, and also individualism and collectivism. So because some of the major political, no, well, political, I wouldn't put it political. One of the major social, moral social themes in the book is individualism versus collectivism, right? Because uh, individualism is the view that every individual is an end in himself and has the moral right to live for his own sake, to pursue his goals, to pursue his happiness, uh, unmolested, so to speak. Um, and that he's not just a fragment of the group and the group tells him what to do, the group can dispose of him. That's, that's collectivism. Collectivism is the view that the individual has no such right. The individual is not an end in himself. Uh, the society is what counts. The society is what gets to govern or dispose of individuals as it sees fits. There are no barriers in effect. 
society decides. And that's, that's what really what the society and anthem is organized around collectivism. Um, and it's, and it's putting collectivism in its most consistent form, um, consistently practiced form. Uh, and just to show exactly what, this is what it means in practice when taken seriously. And you don't want any dose of this poison. Um, but that's, that's an argument. Needs, you need to have an argument for that. Why? Because sometimes you'll get a question from students. Well, why can't it be you can pursue your own goals and your own happiness? For, but then also society gets to tell you what to do in some other areas. Like, why not just have a mixture? Uh, why? And that's a good question to ask. Um, and this, but that's, these are the kinds of questions I think they should start asking themselves because one way or another, they're going to have to face this issue of, there's, this is one of the reasons why I think this is important. Every student in that classroom has to face this issue. It's how do I, how do I, what is my relationship to others in moral terms, in social political terms? Like, do I owe people something? Um, do I have obligations to them which supersede or should stand over my, my own goals and my own happiness? And how do I think that when you live in society? Does society simply get to tell me what to do? Uh, maybe not in everything, but in significant areas in life. And I, my role is to obey or is it, or should I be pushing for, no, I want freedom. I want more freedom to pursue these things. And they have to think about those. Uh, I mean, many people just don't think too much about them. And I think it's, I think they should. And our role in these events uh, is, I mean, quite explicitly, we're not trying to sell them that Ayn Rand is right. Um, I mean, part of it, it's, we, we, we think these ideas are right. And so some of that I'm sure comes across, but it's not to say, yeah, Ayn Rand's right. You guys are wrong or something. It's more that you should be thinking about these issues. Uh, they're important to your own life. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's something that reading different kinds of literature, different stories really helps someone think about by literature shows different characters different worlds and you can start to think about is this character someone i admire as as you mentioned aaron is this is this an admirable character he seems kind of selfish but is that wrong is that right and you can start to kind of imagine would i want to live like this person would i want to live this kind of life and it's part of the, the value of anthem is it provides a distinct character and uh, distinct characters and a distinct uh, society and a distinct set of views on these issues that uh, students are are unlikely to encounter in other stories. Um, it it's it's a perspective that is not a common one. Ayn Rand has a lot of different ideas uh, from most other thinkers and most other novelists. And uh, even if students don't end up agreeing with Ayn Rand, I think that they can benefit from reading her and, and studying her perspective and they can see this is this is an option this is a a type of life that i didn't know existed even and i can think about that and think about do i want to live this kind of life maybe not but maybe there are aspects of it that they do take along with them like they might become more motivated to think of, to start thinking for themselves and and trying to practice the virtue of intellectual independence even if they don't end up you know becoming uh, and a lifelong avid reader of Ayn Rand. So this is a this is a, a value that can 
be accessible to students at a lot of different levels. Um, and uh, this also is true when you're thinking about these questions about politics and questions about what kind of relationship should exist between individuals and society. Um, this society in Anthem is uh, one that's starkly different from our society today. And it's, it's strange and it's very different. And students can start to cultivate a perspective of this is a different sort of society. Is this better or worse? Would I rather live in this one or would I rather live in the one I grew up in? And it can spark thinking about other different options. Like Aaron mentioned, some of them might think you could do a sort of mixture of individualism and collectivism. And how would that work? And, and would that work? Um, and you know, we have a perspective on that, Ayn Rand has a perspective on that, but the students can start to think through their own perspective on that and start to think for themselves about, about that issue. And thinking about the way that the society is presented in the novel is a good way for them to start realizing that there are some really deep issues, really deep intellectual, even philosophical, although that's often not a word that we would use in say a ninth grade classroom, but we would, we would mention the issues, the philosophical issues that are at play here. So one of them that pertains to the, the question of different societies and how can we construct society in different ways and which ones are preferable is uh, as Aaron was discussing, the, the fact that societies in Ayn Rand's view are based on moral codes. So different kinds of societies result from different views of morality. And this is really, really pronounced in Anthem because much of the way that this authoritarianism is enforced on the people is through the moral code. It's not really enforced by having big armies of, you know, jackboot wearing uh, police officers walking through the streets, pushing people against walls, arresting them. It's really enforced by the fact that they have convinced or indoctrinated people from childhood to believe that they are only capable of being moral insofar as they serve and obey the group and that any sort of independent thought, uh, exercise of independent will is evil and they are evil even if they have a moment of thinking for themselves. And that really uh, is, that's what's controlling them is these moral ideas that have been taught. And then you can look at a society like ours and you can notice that there are in certain ways important differences in some of the moral values we have. I, I mean, I think intellectual independence is still something that's prized to a great degree in America today. But on the other hand, it raises questions like, well, a lot of the ideas of self-sacrifice, serving others before yourself are popular in our world today. And how do we think of that? And are we in, are, is there a danger of these ideas leading to a different sort of society than, than the one we have now. So in this example and in, in others that, that Aaron was mentioning before, it's Anthem is a really intellectual philosophical novel that raises a lot of deep issues. But the, the thing about it that makes it so great for 
students kind of in their in their early to to late teens is that it raises these issues in the context of a very interesting fascinating story of kind of a mystery of how did this world come to be and how is this how is how are these people going to figure out how to change their lives or are they going to change their lives what are they going to do it's this thrilling story and the philosophical questions rise naturally from the events they, they just rise out of questions that students really have just when they first read the novel how did the world get this way is this guy a moral character is he a hero or is he maybe not so moral or or a mixed case these questions just come from reading the story it's not like there's you have to put on this layer of a philosophical treatise in order to raise these questions with students. not it's not something that a lot of 14 year olds are interested in but a story is something they're interested in and it raises all sorts of questions like the ones we've been discussing what is good and evil what is it the right society what is the right kind of society to live in how do societies change and shift over time these all just rise right out of the events of the story yeah <clears throat> and i think that's right that sorry. Uh, I think you're right that the, these questions rise arise naturally in the students' minds out of reading the story. Uh, but I think it's also important to say that, so when we do these classroom visits, so we come in for, say, an hour. Um, teachers in teaching these classes over the period of a, a week, two weeks, a month, depending on how long they spend on it, um, are also framing the kinds of issues that Sam and I are talking about, but often in different ways. Um, and partly just depending on what the teacher's own views are. Um, so they're not always framed in the same way. So sometimes we're framing things, uh, maybe often framing things in different ways than the teacher has been framing them in class. Sometimes there is overlap. Sometimes the teacher is a, a, a fan of Rand's ideas and thinks that this is good stuff. And I, I hope my students adopt at least some of these things. Uh, and sometimes it's just, no, I'm not necessarily a fan of Ayn Rand, but my students love the books, and so I keep teaching it. I mean, it's if it gets them thinking about uh, literature and the value in that you can find in literature, I just keep teaching it. And so sometimes what helps is we come in and supplement um, in a more philosophical way some of the themes. Um, and Sam, you mentioned the, the writing and the story and its gripping and so on. And I think something else affects the students, and I don't think they know it. Um, uh, and that's that the novel exudes uh, reverence in, in ways that it's, I think it sort of affects the students, it washes over them in a certain way. And I don't think they exactly put their finger on it. Um, they're not taught to think about reverence in terms of um, in terms of man, you know, in terms of looking at human beings, looking at individuals, and thinking in terms so that relate to reverence. Reverence is something you know for God or something supernatural, and yet you get all of this reverence is just exuded and, and dramatized in the story for an individual's pursuit of the true and the good and of his pursuit of love and his pursuit of knowledge and that that is an uh, that that is an object of reverence 
like real reverence is something they'll never encounter. I think almost, well, maybe that's not entirely true, but it's very rare to get that projected. And because she's a writer and this is art, uh, it's, this I think affects them and strikes them in a certain kind of way. And they, uh, I think they wouldn't always be able to put their finger on it and say, oh yeah, she's, she's showing reverence for the, no, but it's just all over the place in the story. Uh, and the story's unique too. The writing is unique in this book. This is not like reading, well, this is not like reading The Fountainhead or Atlas Shrugged or some of her other novels. It's, it's, it's very poetic. Um, she thinks of it as sort of a kind of a, 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 fa a fantasy, a quasi poem. You know, it's, it's, I mean, it's not rhyming or anything, but it's, there's something very different about the way the writing is done. It's almost biblical. If you've read the King James version of the Bible, right? It's, it's, it's written in a, almost biblical style. And I think that's partly meant to, in a way, tap into some of the, the sense of reverence and, and seriousness um, that she takes these issues and she thinks that we should take these issues. So she's redirecting reverence in a way, away from the supernatural, away from gods, away from some other world apart from our own and directing it toward what she thinks is real objects of reverence here on earth. And it's, it's man, it's the individual, it's the reasoning mind, it's the pursuit of truth and what that looks like in a life. And it's, it's also probably their first encounter with romantic literature. And I don't mean romance literature. <laughs> I mean, romantic literature in the sense that it's projecting ideals, it's projecting uh, people with free will in the world pursuing their goals, where they real face real alternatives and options and the options that they choose really matter to the, their lives. And, and it makes us think, yeah, what are the ideals I want to pursue? What could life be like? What could I be like? And if I make the right choices, being like that. Um, and it's a great example of that category of art, if you want to think about it that way. Um, that also they're, they're not familiar with, I think. Um, yeah, so I wanted to say something about the reverence. And also, I think some of my favorite passages in the books are um, the ones between equality and liberty, the scenes, um, and what they feel for each other and how they face each other and approach each other. I think you find them uh, quite moving. I think there was a, okay, so weird analogy, but uh, in Baltimore, there was a uh, museum. I think it was called the Walters Museum, I think. And it was a small museum, but it had paintings on every inch of the walls. And it was just packed with paintings. And so it was sort of like for, for square footage, so to speak, uh, the number of artworks that you could take in was just stunning. And I think uh, Anthem is, reminds me of that in the sense that the number of just truly moving passages, impactful passages, they're on every page because it's so concentrated in, in how the story is told and the manner in which it's told. Um, I think it makes it just quite impactful, uh, even if some of the ideas go over your head or something for the, for the kids. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree that that makes that sense of reverence and the, the beauty of the language makes the novel really impactful to a lot of students. Um, I think on the other hand, it can also be 
a bit of a challenge and it can be something that the teacher is needs to help them with or that we're helping them with when we come in for a visit because it's as i said earlier it's not like a lot of things that they've probably read already at school and as aaron pointed out that's it's romanticism which is a, a different style of of literature than than is the most common type of books that they're going to read read in school and um and the biblical language in an age where uh, i think not as many people have read the king james bible as they they did you know it, when ayn rand wrote this book uh, that's another sort of uh, challenge that uh it's not an insurmountable one and it, it it's one that that teachers and that we can help support students to kind of bridge that gap and and get into and just find a lot to love in the story but that's one of the things that makes it a little bit different i think teaching anthem in uh, 2021 uh, as opposed to uh, you know 50 or 60 years ago yeah and i want to make sure let's make sure we save some time for questions uh and uh, we're getting some uh sent in so we'll get to those in a in a sec um but a few words we should probably say about some of the challenges in teaching this I think both of us have found in, in, in approaching this, in, in teaching, teaching or talking about the novel to students is, I mean, the story is about in effect an authoritarian future. And Ayn Rand is writing this at a time when, I mean, Stalin is in power in Russia and a dictatorship in the Soviet Union. Uh, Mussolini uh, has started a dictatorship in Italy. Uh, Germany has already become a dictatorship. So, collectivist dictatorships are sweeping Europe. And I, Ayn Rand found that when she came to the United States that there were intellectuals and journalists and stuff kind of enamored of these kinds of ideas and thinking of it as noble experiments. And she was like, this is not what she expected to find in, in the United States of America. Uh, and so in effect, it's a, it's a warning and it's, uh, and, but the students don't know anything about dictatorships. They, they've heard the word Soviet Union, probably it's a place, it's, I don't know, a country or something, uh, but they don't know, they don't have the historical knowledge to know what, what it really looks like, what it means to, what dictatorship really looks like, um, what it means to live a life where you're just obey, obeying and you live in fear and independence is punished and it's, you can't live your life. And they don't, the reality of that I mean, I, I draw connections to North Korea um, because I think it's the closest to what Anthem would be like uh, without all the big armies and so on. Uh, and I tell them, look, look that up. Look up what is life like in North Korea and read about that. This, this is real in the world stuff. It's not you know, just sci-fi. Um, I mean, that's one element. And then Sam, do you want to, do you have anything you want to throw in on that note of well, connecting I, it to their lives today? I think that's it. Yeah, so I, I think that is a big challenge that exists, the, the, that there's not so much of a context for understanding what authoritarian regimes are. And just to add to that is that when you're living in a world where, say, the United States is in conflict with the, the other major superpower in the world, and that whole country is an authoritarian dictatorship, that is much more real that this is something that could happen. Uh, and I think that's something that I, I mentioned earlier is is something that is a little bit of a challenge for today's students is to see this type of society as something that could really happen. 
it, I think it strikes, we get questions sometimes where it seems like students have taken this as like a very wildly far-fetched fantasy. And in a certain sense, it is, as Aaron mentioned, it is kind of a, there is a sense in which it's a fantasy, but there's a lot of it that is real and could really happen and has really happened in, in the last hundred years. Um, and that's another one of the challenges I think that exists, especially today is bridging that gulf between this very strange world and our world. Whereas in, in decades past, you could kind of you know, point to the headlines and you know, you've, you can read about the Soviet Union or you can read about Nazi Germany. I mean, I think that uh, another factor here is that uh, the students that we're talking to at least today, the, a lot of them, eighth and ninth graders, they haven't learned a lot of world history yet. So this might be even their, like one of their earliest encounters with the whole idea of a dictatorship. Um, so I think that's, that's a really uh, pertinent challenge of connecting this novel to reality for them. But on the other hand, I think that makes the novel all the more important when there's now, maybe if they don't read this novel, they won't get a real sense that of the dangers of authoritarianism and, and what gives rise to it, and, and that it's a real possibility that a country could fall into. Uh, so it's, it's an added challenge, but I think it's that the fact that it is so distant from their context makes it all the more important for them to really get into this story and experience what a total authoritarian society would look like. And what a hero really looks like from yes. the positive end. Um, so, okay, let's let's move on to questions because we're sort of running out of time here. The first thing I want to do is uh, acknowledge a couple of super chats. Uh, one, a couple from Mary Aline. Thank you, Mary Aline, and also Brandon. Thank you for the for the support. Um, we got a question, and I can say a few things about this, but I think I want to throw this your way, Sam. Uh, so, we got a question on Zoom: Are there teacher guides? that from ARI that go along with Rand's books that teachers can use to focus in on good questions of this nature. You wanna start or me? I can start. We do have uh, teacher guides on our website. I don't know exactly what page it is off the top of my head, um, but if you go to einrand.org and you find the Anthem page, there's, there's a tab for teacher resources where we have uh, some guides that present um, present uh, questions for discussion or, or to assign students and, and that kind of help guide teachers to uh, important points in the novel. A couple of other things that we've done uh, for teachers are uh, we have a course that uh, Keith Lockich did a few years ago on the novel that's on uh, the Ayn Rand University app and in, on the Ayn Rand campus website. And Aaron, you did a series of webinars last year um, talking about the novel. And, and I believe that you actually had like questions from students coming in to the, into the webinars. Uh, so that, that's on YouTube, on our YouTube channel as well. Uh, and we're always kind of thinking about what more we can do, what uh, further resources we can, uh, we can create uh, and make available for to help teachers make this novel a great experience for their students. Yeah, and two things. One, um, what, what I usually try to do um, is when I'm going to do a classroom visit, I meet with the teacher beforehand. And we talk a little bit about, so how, how did you approach the novel? What were some of the themes that you stressed? 
um, what were some of the real confusions that the student has uh, have in the questions? Did you get questions you couldn't answer? You felt like, I don't know. And so it's that you'd like me to address and supplement in any way. Um, what did the, how did they react? The students react to the story. Were there things that they found problematic or, or confusing? And then I try to, you know, supplement that, fill in the gaps in that regard. All right. Uh, well, we had a question that was emailed to us that uh, I will try to uh, condense because there's a lot of kind of background information that uh, that was sent in with this question, but I think it's a good one. Um, the, the question is essentially asking, well, there are kind of a few points, but is essentially asking what is the motivation for teachers to teach Anthem? Uh, why should they choose Anthem? I think I take it that the question is asking both uh, Anthem as opposed to some of Ayn Rand's other novels, and why should they teach Anthem if they are not familiar with Ayn Rand, if they don't agree with Ayn Rand's ideas, what what's the reason to do it uh so kind of on the first one um i think one of the reasons why teachers naturally gravitate towards anthem among ayn rand's novels is that uh it's the shortest one by far uh i mean atlas shrugged is over a thousand pages and the fountainhead is like seven or eight hundred 700, I think, and uh, and her other novel, We the Living, is also like 500 pages. So when a teacher's planning a curriculum, it's a lot easier to fit in a 100-page novel than a 500 or 1,000-page novel. So that's just, from a pure logistical standpoint, a reason to teach Anthem, if, especially if teachers trying to structure a busy semester. Um, then uh, but what is the value of Anthem that Ayn Rand's other novels don't have or don't have as much besides just the brevity? Well, I think Aaron talked a lot about the beauty and the, po the poetry of the novel. It's written in a different style from her other works. And there's, a, I think, more opportunity to kind of go into particular lines or, or sections and, and appreciate some of the stylistic choices she's making that doesn't exist uh, as much in her other novels, although those other novels do have their own, uh, plenty of stylistic beauty of their own. Um, and I think it, it presents a really focused story that really deals with like one basic issue. Uh, and there related issues, but the issue of, I mean, the way it's put in the novel is, is I versus we. Should you have the perspective that's the society in the novels pushing that you should be, we are all one, it's all the great we, and you should subordinate yourself, your mind, your values, your interests to the group, uh, or should you assert your own I, assert yourself and, and use your own mind and pursue your own goals. This contrast between the I and the we, it's in all of Ayn Rand's other novels and, and, and her, in her nonfiction, but Anthem really focuses on this issue and brings it in this, in, into sharp relief in this kind of startling scenario of a world where you literally can't even use one of those words. And, let me that say something. That is a really vivid, vivid scenario. Yeah, Aaron. 
Yeah, one of the teachers that we uh, had a classroom visit for, she, during the time that she was teaching Anthem, she didn't allow any of the students to say I. And she got a lot of complaints from parents. <laughs> uh, but it's interesting because they find it. And so if I say we thought this about the story and we have a, it, they find it very disorienting that it's, it's, you can't think of yourself as expressing your independent thoughts when you don't have a word for you as an independent entity. And it's, we think that, well, I don't know, we, I don't know who the we is here. <laughs> uh, I think, well, okay, okay, I can't, can't say that. We, and it, they're, they're, they're sent, there's a sense in which their self is eradicated uh, for the, just for the duration of the class. And it's, and it was, I think, an effective tool because it really brought them into the story and it made it real for them. Um, we're running out of time. So let me see if I can hit two of the questions really fast before I get to the kind of final words. Uh, in this time of cancellation, critical theory and indoctrination by school teachers, unions and boards and so on, how do you land invitations to speak? Um, those often aren't, well, put it this way, we only hear from the, uh, the people who want us to come. So we don't so often hear from the people who would like to, but their school administration shut them down. But that does happen. Uh, and I have had teachers tell me, there are things you can't say in the class. Like you can't bring up anything that's, you can't say anything about race or, or something. You can't touch this topic. And, and then I, in some cases you could talk to them and say, well, this can't not come up because it's part of what, you know, um, but it's one thing to be sensitive to some of the concerns the teachers have because they're looked on by their own administrators. And sometimes a, a principal will be in the room attending one of the talks. And so there's a, there's a question of sensitivity, but I'm not, we're not going to censor ourselves in terms of talking, but we are sensitive to some of the teacher's concerns about they're trying to introduce students to things. And yet there are these pressures. Um, and I guess we should probably wrap it up here. So let me, let me, thanks a lot, Sam, for what you're bringing here. I think it's, uh, I think what you're doing here is good. I've, I've visited some of your classroom visits uh, and you have a very good manner with, with the students. And I appreciate that a lot. Um, so if Thank you're, you. so let's go to resources here. Um, so obviously you have Ayn Rand's book, Anthem. If you haven't read it, and I know many people this is not their first Ayn Rand novel. If you haven't read it, uh, you're, I envy you the treat uh, of the first time. Um, if you're a teacher or if you're someone who just wants to dig deeper into the philosophic themes, the literary themes, the history of the writing of the novel and so on, I think the best resource uh, is um, uh, the book called Essays on Ayn Rand's Anthem. It's a collection of essays edited by Dr. Robert Mayhew. It's a wonderful resource. Um, on the novel and its themes in detail. Uh, and then there's certainly the um, Ayn Rand's book, The Romantic Manifesto. Uh, and it has the, the subtitle, uh, a so it's called The Romantic Manifesto, A Philosophy of Literature. And so this is a collection of essays on uh, her views on, on art and the philosophy of art and particular on literature. And you'll learn a lot about the whole way she thinks about art and literature and what she's trying to do in her literary works and the relationship between the philosophic issues and the art. Because one of the things that Sam and I were talking a lot about was the philosophic ideas, right? The intellectual independence and individualism and so on. But geez, it's art. It's, 
you can just sort of like, it, you don't read them for some sort of philosophic erudition. Uh, it's you read them to experience the story and the characters. And I think that's its best aspect. Um, so yeah, so let, let's, let's go ahead uh, and tell you what's going on next week. So you can join us next week on New Idea Live. Uh, ben Bayer and Augustina Vergara-Sid are gonna be discussing the recent Texas uh, abortion law. So totally different topic, but uh, this is this is important. It's worth watching. Uh, now, if you enjoy uh, this broadcast and you'd like to be able to follow us in the future, there are a few things you can do. If you're watching on YouTube, uh, obviously you can subscribe to the channel, click the bell to get notifications when we go live or post new material. If you're watching on Facebook, consider liking the post or leaving a comment there. Uh, also, if you have questions about today's material or questions you'd like us to answer, just send us an email at newideal at aynrand.org. So that wraps up today's episode. Thanks again, Sam. And thanks everyone for watching the show. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.